Dear congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. We will be looking at this uh, passage about um, halfway through the, the sermon in quite detail. Um, we'll just uh, kind of walk through the different parts of it to nail down what's at the center of it. Um, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And uh, with that in mind, we'll just read the first 22 verses at this time, but we will be looking at the whole chapter and even the context before and after 1 Corinthians 10. Well, let's uh, hear God's word. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things become our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our, our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That the idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? As far the reading of God's precious and infallible word. Let us also confess what we believe also and what Scripture records for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. 
As is summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 34, regarding the first commandment. And we'll uh, look at question 93, 94, 95. You can find it on page 70. Question 93. How are these commandments, the two tables of the law, divided? Answer, into two tables. The first of which teaches us how we must behave toward God. The second, what duties we owe to our neighbor. Question 94. What does God enjoin in the first commandment? Answer, that I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, which uh, you heard a sermon on last week, invocation of saints or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God. Trust in him alone with humility and patience. Submit to him. Expect all good things from him only. Love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. Question 95. What is idolatry? Answer. Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifest himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. That's for our confession and exposition of the first commandment. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, A little over a month ago, when we celebrated the Lord's Supper, I gave a short introduction to the law and showed how from the Lord's Supper there is a connection to the very law of God as we go forth from the table, recognizing that we go forth serving the Lord our God. And we recognize that in the giving of God's law, that first of all, he has established a relationship with us, his people. We find that in the very preamble of the law, I am the Lord, your God. He has established a, a personal, intimate relationship with his people. And he has redeemed them by his grace. I am the one who has redeemed you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And I have rewarded you with this wonderful grace of you being my peculiar treasure, my special treasure, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, to be called his sons, his children, to be called his bride, to have boldness to enter the presence of God through Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. This is the Lord our God and his relationship with us. And he sets that before us as he gives us his law. And he says, therefore, here are my ten love rules in order for you to maintain this glorious relationship with me, the Lord your God. And the first one is this. Have no other gods before me. 
If you want true joy, if you want true peace, if you want true liberty as the redeemed children of God, the Almighty God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth who has redeemed us, here is the number one love rule. Have no other gods before me. We define this as idolatry. And an idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to make us happy, to cause us to be fulfilled, to be secure, to have confidence in. In biblical terms, it is something other than God that we set in our heart that motivates us, that masters us, that rules us, and that controls what we do and how we live. Something we trust in and fear and serve. Other than God. Idolatry is having any false god. Any object, any idea, any philosophy, any religion that in one way or another, to one degree or another, decreases our trust and loyalty to the triune God. That's idolatry. And in order to identify the idols in our, in our own heart, we need to get to the heart of the matter. And we need to ask questions to ourselves. Where do I find my identity? What gives me significance in life? What do I put my confidence in? Where do I find my happiness from? And maybe an ultimate question. What makes me angry? We usually get angry when our idols get knocked off the shelf. That's when we get angry. And so there is a righteous anger. When God gets knocked off his shelf, as it were, and is blasphemed, we have a right to be angry, a just and a holy anger. But too often we're not so angry about that, are we? We're angry when Others expose the idols in our own heart, in our own life. And sometimes these are actually things that you could say and justify and say, well, it's a beautiful thing and it's good. And yet, it deprives us from a relationship with God and with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we love and can't live without it. Many times we make the wonderful gifts of God idols in our lives. And every single moment we are not turning away from our sin and our selfishness and fleeing to Jesus Christ, we are breaking the first commandment. Every time we think our ideas and our worldviews 
are more important than God and His Word, and God is not at the center of our life, we are committing idolatry. It's called secularism. When my or man's opinions and my and man's values are more important than God's opinion and God's values, we commit idolatry. Every time I put my confidence and trust in my material things, my house and my bank account and my job or whatever it would be, we commit idolatry. And it's called materialism. Every time we find our fulfillment and ultimate fulfillment in our hobby, in our sports, and, and, and maybe even sometimes in our spouses or children or myself or technology or whatever it is. Whenever we go by the philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or if it feels good, do it. We've bought into humanism and it's idolatry. Every time we think our religion will get us to heaven, it is idolatry. I'm not just talking about false religions that are idolatry. False religions indeed are blatant idolatry. But being religious without Christ is idolatry. To hope in being religious is idolatry. That's what our culture tells us today. If you are religious, there are many roads to heaven. And as a culture, we celebrate pluralism that every, all of these roads, isn't it neat? Everybody's religious. How many people do you hear have died and gone to hell? Because they did not believe in Jesus Christ. We live in a world that celebrates idolatry. And God is calling his people out of this world that celebrates idolatry to be his church, to be his children, to be his bride. And he calls them out of this world to have an exclusive relationship with him. And he says, have no other gods before me. What does this word before mean? It means in the Hebrew, don't have any gods in my face. Sometimes we think that the first commandment says, don't have any gods before me means you can have all kinds of gods, but just don't make those gods more important than the Lord your God. Don't set them higher than me. But God says, no. Don't have any other gods in my face. Don't let me see them. Don't let me even give it a whiff of them. Don't have any gods before me. In other words, there are no other religious, there's no other legitimate gods in this world. 
And that's why we find in Isaiah 45 and are called to worship as well today from Isaiah 48 and so on, that, that there is no other God beside me. It's repeated and repeated and repeated in the Scriptures. And one commentator writes, choosing for the Lord always means a choice that excludes every other God. As Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. He's not saying choose between God and, and Baal and the other gods. He's saying if you choose God, you will serve God. But if you don't choose God and you don't want to serve God, go ahead and choose from all of the other gods because you can choose Baal one day and you can choose the Asherahs the other day and you can choose the gods of the Moabites and the gods of the Amorites any other day. But guess what? When you choose God, you're saying there's no gods in the face of God. He's the only God. Exclusive God. One God. A God who gives a reason for this commandment. He says, because I am a jealous God. I'm jealous of my name. I'm jealous of my work. I'm jealous as the one who has created everything and who has given breath to everyone. I am jealous because I have given my own son And he's died for sinners. I'm jealous of my name. I'm jealous of my work. Don't have any other gods before me. And if you do, I will punish to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I will bless. I will bless to thousands who love me and keep this first commandment. Have no other gods before me. This is a God who's faithful to His Word. And here as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you can see and feel the heart of Paul writing to these Corinthians who were living in this pluralistic, hedonistic culture. Saying, flee! Oh, flee from idolatry! Flee from idolatry. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 10. There in 1 Corinthians 10, we have several therefore statements. And you remember when you have a therefore statement, it's there for a reason. And Paul's is using these things to establish his argument. And in the center of them all is this, in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, with his heart poured out to the Corinthians, he says, flee idolatry. Why is he doing so? Well, first of all, then we need to know the context. Notice verse 12. There's another therefore statement. And that therefore statement says this. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What's happening to the Corinthian church? Well, what's happening to the Corinthian church is this. The Corinthian church was very arrogant. They were very educated. 
affluent in culture and society. And they thought they could stand. They were arrogant. After all, these refined, cultured, educated Christians were more in tune with God's Word than the very Apostle Paul and his cohort, Apollos, who were the very stewards of the mysteries of God. You can find this in chapter 4, verse 6, where we read, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another against one another. These were Christians who were puffed up in their own imaginations, in their own education, in their own thoughts, in their own opinions, in their own ideas. Notice verse 18. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. And in verse 19, But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the word of power. They were arrogant. And they were so arrogant that they were shamelessly proud of accepting gross sin in their midst in chapter 5. There in chapter 5, we find that the immorality has entered the church. And what does Paul say in verse 2? And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And that is having sexual immorality. Such terrible sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, it's not even wanted to be named. The Gentiles would blush at it. So puffed up. That we find in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But then he says, love edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But anyone loves God, he is known by him. These Corinthians were puffed up. And as this chapter unfolds, he gives dimensions to the reckless pride, naming superstition, as you heard of last week. And here, as we turn to chapter 10, we we especially see that superstitious confidence that they have in chapter 10. Notice this. He goes on to say, Moreover, brethren, in chapter 10, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and the sea and they ate of the same spiritual food. They all drank of the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. He's saying God had a special relationship with the children of Israel, and yet there's a direct connection to you here in the New Testament, even in Corinth. And you need to recognize that with many of them, God was not well pleased, and their bodies perished in the wilderness as a testimony of that. These are for our examples, he says to the Corinthians. 
that we would not lust after the same things. And what was happening? What was happening in Corinth is, is that they also were superstitious as, as, as making the Lord's Supper and baptism and the sacraments. They were making these superstitious signs that it was okay with them and it was well with their souls and they could go out into the world and be untouched from the world even when they went into the pagan temples and ate the sacrifices and participated in the sacrifices to pagan gods. Well, we are free. We are liberated. And in this superstitious liberation that they thought they had, they would go into the pagan temples and they would participate in their worship. Paul is saying, don't think that you can stand. Take heed, lest thinking you stand, you fall. Because remember the Israelites and the examples that are in the wilderness that when they made the golden calf when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And he comes down and 3,000 souls were, were taken when they were eating and drinking and feasting before this golden calf of idolatry. Think of Numbers 25 when, when they were around Moab and they began to, to commit harlotry with the Moabitish women, and they began to take their gods, and they were having sexual immorality with these Moabites. And God destroyed 24,000 of them. I'm not even sure if 24,000 people died in Ontario from, from COVID. Just to put it into perspective. And yet, in one day there, God commanded the judges to slay 24,000. Because of their idolatry. As they tested the Lord and thought they were wiser than the Lord and grumbled and complained against Moses and against God for the water and for, 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 the, for the manna that came down from heaven when they thought they deserved better and were entitled to better and fell into their humanistic ideals. They were poisoned by serpents. God doesn't take idolatry lightly. Don't think you can stand. As thinking you stand, you fall. But rather, he says, beloved, flee from idolatry. What goes before his argument is important, but also what follows it. The argument that follows his command is equally important. Notice verse 15. He says, you know, you Corinthians, you very educated, refined people, you are so wise, I'm going to address you in your wisdom. He says in verse 16, in, in addressing you in your wisdom, I'm going to remind you of how jealous God is of his name. He says the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not? The communion of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. We all partake of that bread. 
But then he says this, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partaker of the altar? Are not those Israelites, you could say it on one hand, are not those Levites and priests who, who, who serve the altar of God, are they not partakers of that altar? And are they not blessed through doing so? And the answer would be yes. But we have to remember here that he's also talking about those Israelites after the flesh, those who built the, the golden calf in, in the wilderness. Are not all those who were eating and drinking and being merry and feasting under this golden calf? Were they not also partakers of the altar? And did not God in His covenant curse curse them because of it? You see, when you partake in the worship of idolatry, you become a partaker of it, he says. And then he goes on to reason with them. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to an idol anything? And the answer is no. An idol is nothing before God. It it may be carved out of the very creation of God. It's so foolish to think that an idol has any power. Or a false religion has any power or significance. It's absolutely foolish. They have ears. They don't hear. They have eyes. They don't see. They have hands, but they don't touch. Why would you give any credit to an idol, he says. It's, it's really nothing. And the food offered to them is it's nothing. As a matter of fact, that food is God's creation. It's God's good provision. The thing is, he says, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. In verse 20, he says, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Paul here is saying, there's only two camps. Either you're for God, or you serve demons. There's not something in between. There's not a syncretism. There's not some kind of, some kind of relevancy to anything that is idolatrous. It is either of God, or it is of Satan. One or the other. There's, there's no real... There's no real difference. You can't, dis- you can't find some kind of middle ground where it's half of God and half of demons. It's all of God or it's all of demons. And so they have fellowship with demons. Even though they're the good gifts of God, they're offered to demons. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons, he says. Notice verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the altar of God and the altar of demons. It's as simple as that. You can't partake of the Lord's table and be a partaker of the table of demons at the same time. It's impossible. Why? Because we provoke God to jealousy. And it's the God who says, Have no other gods before me because I am a jealous God. Do we pretend to be stronger than God himself? Remember this argument? Don't think you can stand. Otherwise you'll fall. Do you think you can stand? Do you think you can stand before God, a jealous God, as you partake of the table of demons? 
But he goes on. There's more reasons to be on guard, Corinthians. Notice verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. What is he saying there? It picks up in verse 24 as well. Let no one seek his own, but each one his other's well-being. He's saying that that in all we do, even though it would not necessarily be wrong to partake of the offerings that are given to idols, because it's God's food that he's given, be careful not to use your Christian liberties to offend a weaker brother. Yes, it might be lawful for you. It may be permissible for you. But do not use that permission as a liberty to do so, especially when you would confuse or cause a weaker brother to be tripped up. And then he goes on to another argument. He also says, be careful not to get into idolatry, but rather flee idolatry so that you do not confuse the spiritual welfare of an unbeliever. Notice notice how he goes on. In verse 25, he says, You can eat whatsoever is sold in the meat market. Just don't ask questions. These are the good gifts of God. Don't ask questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. But then he uses this illustration, verse 27. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, go. If someone who is worshiping Baal and God is calling you to go like Elijah this morning to this widow, go. If you desire to go and have have a meal with them, go. By all means. Doesn't mean you can't have a meal with them. And when you go, eat whatever is set before you. And don't ask any questions for conscience sake. Don't ask where that meat came from. And if you don't know where that meat came from, you know that it came from God. He is the one who gives all food and provision. Now, the problem comes in here. You're in the house of an unbeliever. If anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, then he says this, do not eat it for the sake of of the one who told you. For the sake of that person who told you, for the sake of the host that's in the house, don't eat for his conscience sake. Why? Well, he explains that in verse 29. Conscience, I say, not your own conscience. Your conscience is free at liberty. To eat of that food. It's from God. But why wouldn't he be able to eat? Because of the other man's conscience. If I partake with thanks, he says, why am I evil speaking of of the food which I give thanks? This was good for me. But for the other person, it is confusing. For the other person, Paul is saying, 
you are becoming a stumbling block because you are saying it is okay to eat that meat and give, give legitimacy to the sacrifice that it signified. You are telling that person it is okay to worship a pagan god. That's why we need to be careful with our Christian liberties. Because if we give the evidence to others that they are on their and, and act as if they are on their way to heaven and never correct them. We are doing one of the most unloving things a person could ever do. We are giving them the most unloving witness we could ever give them. Is what Paul's saying. For their conscience sake, Do not eat of it. Flee it. Forsake it. It's as clear as that. You know, Paul Paul knew the challenges of living in a very pluralistic society. With gods all around him. As a matter of fact, in the chapter before, in chapter 9, he says, For though I am free, in verse, 20, in verse 19, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I become a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And so if they're making extra laws, I, I, will, even, I will even go along with them so I can win the Jews. I will come under their laws. No problem. But those who are, he says in verse verse 21, to those who are without the law as without the law. But then he puts something in parentheses. He says, not being without the law toward God, but under the law of Christ. So he says, yes, I go to those who are without the law, who do not have laws. And yet I go to them understanding that I am under the law of God, under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. And so he becomes, to the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. But he never, he says, I can never compromise the law toward God the law toward Christ. But in all situations, I must serve God exclusively. He's saying, therefore, don't think you can stand. You will fall. But God, He can provide ways of escape out of temptation. And then He says, Flee from idolatry. When God gives you that way of escape, flee from idolatry. But then he gives one last therefore in verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all 
to the glory of God. You see, every commandment of God, it has a negative. Do not have any other gods before me. But that also means to do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do in all of life, every aspect of life, eating, drinking, do all to the glory of God. And how can we do all to the glory of God? Our catechism puts it so beautifully. We need to, we need to rightly know God. We need to rightly know Him. We need to acknowledge Him as the one who's all-powerful. He's over everything. He's everywhere present. And He delivers us in times of temptation. He keeps us from stumbling. He gives us grace to flee idolatry. And He gives us grace to live to His glory. He is the one. He is the one true God. And that's what Jesus says is eternal life. It is to know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom He has sent. To know His glorious salvation. That He who was lifted up on the cross for those who grumbled and complained and followed their idolatrous ways in the wilderness could look unto that brazen serpent in the wilderness. So Jesus is lifted up that we who are idolatrous might know that there is forgiveness with God. To rightly know Him and to trust in Him. To trust in Him. To forsake all other creatures. To forsake all other comforts and, and hopes and fulfillments. And to find it all in Jesus Christ. You see, can't you understand? Can't you understand why people who worship other gods have all of these questions, all of these doubts, all of these fears? It's because no other religion answers the ultimate questions of life, the essential questions of life and salvation. Because all they do is call them to do more and to do more rather than to trust and surrender your life to Jesus. Isn't that what we do when we trust in Jesus? When we trust in the Lord? We surrender everything to Him. We surrender everything to His Word, to His will. We surrender our life to Him. Every other religion says, do this, do this, and do that. And and, and you're called to do it because otherwise you're going to fear not making it to the promised land. But with God, He says, surrender it to Me. And I will give you the grace to do. The Word of God is a word of love. It's a word of relationship. It's a word of blessedness. Just don't have any other gods before me and you will be blessed with a relationship with me. A full relationship. He says, serve me with your whole heart. Whether you eat, whether you drink, do it all wholeheartedly to God. 
to serve him sincerely and in truth. Isn't that what Jesus himself said? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. And the heart of that commandment is love. Love. And when we love him, we will love his worship. We will love his day. We will love his name. We will love his image bearers. And we will honor authority and relationships. We will honor life. We will honor the marriage bed. We will honor him in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our gifts, our possessions. We will honor him by not stealing, by not bearing false witness, and by not coveting. And that, dear congregation, will lead us to the liberty that there is in God as his dear redeemed children. That will give us peace with God as his dear redeemed children who have become who had become his bride, the bride of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I want to ask you a question. I trust husbands, you love your wives. And wives, you love your husbands. And you want a good relationship. You don't want anything to get between the two of you. You don't want another woman to get in between the two of you or another man to get in between the two of you. You don't want any temptations to get in between the two of you, pornography and the like. You don't want that to get between the two of you. You don't want different opinions to get between the two of you. You want to be of one mind, united in parenting and in church and fellowship. Because you want to be one. God wants to be one with his people. He doesn't want anything else to get between the two of you. No other gods. It's as simple as that. It's going to hurt your relationship with God if there is. But now let's say in your marriage you're with a group of people and someone stands up and he starts to speak bad about your spouse. Maybe misrepresenting your spouse. Or simply doesn't praise your spouse. You might get a little bit upset. Maybe more than a little bit upset. You might get a lot upset. Who are you to talk about my wife that way or my husband that way? Jesus is our ultimate bridegroom. A bridegroom 
who has come and taken upon himself our flesh, who has suffered and who has died for sinners while we were sinners. He endured our hell to purchase his bride, us as his bride. And if someone is misrepresenting Christ, if someone is not praising Christ, if someone is speaking bad about Christ, and you don't get upset, that's a problem. Because then there's a problem with your relationship with Christ. Do all, everything, whether you eat or whether you drink, to His glory. Render to Him glory, the glory that is due the name of your bridegroom. And we will fall short. But what's so amazing about our bridegroom is he welcomes idolatrous sinners to come to him. And he says, I have kept the first commandment perfectly. And I have paid the price for all who have broken the first commandment. Trust me. Amen.